0: My friend, India's friend, the President of the United States of America, Mr. Dolan Trump. Namaste Trump. Namaste Trump. The First Lady and I have just traveled 8,000 miles around the globe to deliver a message to every citizen across this nation. America loves India. America respects India. And America will always be faithful and loyal friends to the Indian people. And I am optimistic that working together The Prime Minister and I can reach a fantastic deal that's good and even great for both of our countries.
1: Hello and welcome to the Global Enquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia, and each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Emma Ross. Today, we'll be discussing the Indian Citizenship Act. I'm sitting down with Garrett Skokas, a third-year foreign affairs major, and Rhea Harosekar, a first-year intended commerce and mathematics major. You may notice a difference in our audio. Just like last week, we are still recording from home due to the coronavirus outbreak. Now we're going to turn to our topic of the week, which is the Indian Citizenship Act. Do you mind telling us a little bit about what the Indian Citizenship Amendment Act is?
2: Yeah, so the Indian Citizenship Amendment Act was introduced in late 2019 by Prime Minister Modi, and it amends the Citizenship Act of 1955 by allowing for the enactment of a national register of citizens called the NRC, which is a record of all legal citizens of the country. And essentially under its mandates, asylum seekers from neighboring Muslim-majority countries, including Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Bangladesh, will be able to gain access to fast-track Indian nationality as long as they are not Muslim. So groups like Hindus, Buddhists, and Christians will get the chance to receive sanctuary from India, but Muslims will not. And the bill has led to an incredible amount of backlash all over the country, igniting a debate on secularism and communal conflict in India and the intentions of the ruling party, BJP.
1: So is there an expressed reason to the public why it specifically discriminates against Muslims versus other religions?
3: So the BJP and its supporters say that the CAA protects religious minorities in India's neighboring Muslim-majority countries, and that is their reason for instituting this. So here's a quote from Dejas V. Sudhir, who is my local MP for the BJP from Bangalore South. He says, Educated, civilized crowd is definitely informed about the CAA and its positive impact on the welfare of the country. But people who are illiterate and have put up puncture shops are protesting against the CAA. And then we have a quote from a member of the Yuva Brigade, who is a nationalist group. They've carried out several campaigns in support of Prime Minister Modi. He's saying, the Muslims from Islamic countries do not seek refuge in India due to religious prostitution. They come in search of employment. However, the CAA grants citizenship to only those religious minorities that have undergone persecution on religious grounds. So from the you know, eyes of the BJP, they're doing a service to religious minorities in most majority countries.
1: So it looks like from your description, because of this act, there's emerged kind of two viewpoints, either for or against. Do you mind just briefly outlining what the basic ideology between both sides kind of says?
2: Well, the primary reason why people are against the act is because it it seems to discriminate against people that are Muslim. And a lot of people within India view the act as a first step in disenfranchising its Muslim population. And a lot of the international backlash has largely revolved around that discrimination against Muslims.
1: So if it does discriminate yeah. so much, why would people be for The institution of such an act?
3: Uh, Well, here's another quote from Theodos V. Surya. He says it's just an act to grant citizenship to persecuted minorities from neighboring countries, and it does not take away anyone's citizenship. And he says to those who question how we can grant citizenship based on religion, I will point out that the persecution of these minorities was done on the very same religious basis. So that's what we hear from the statements made by BJP members. But also there's no doubt that the BJP at its heart is backed by and is itself a Hindu tribal party or a Hindu nationalist party. And they believe that Hinduism is somehow intrinsic to the Indian subcontinent's residents. And that after like centuries of invasion by Muslims in the form of the Mughals and the Christians in the form of the British, Hinduism is a way of life and it needs to be reclaimed.
1: It almost feels there that, you know, granting citizenship to other religions seems like a red herring talking point for members of the BJC where they can say, you know, this amendment's gonna be helping these people and you know it kind of might draw attention away from, you know, discriminating against a pathway to citizenship for Muslim people.
3: That seems right. And the BJP has a history of having anti-Muslim sentiments. And anti caa activists say that this is not a huge surprise. The 2002 Gujarat riots, those were also fought on religious grounds. And many say they were initiated and condoned by the then chief minister of the state of Gujarat, Narendra Modi, who is the current prime minister of India. Yeah,
1: I mean, I I myself have been hearing a little bit about this in the news, that, you know, the amendment and the BJC party, which is Hindu nationalist, it kind of is rubbing against This usual norm in Indian politics that, you know, it was founded with ideals of a secular state and that, you know, movements from this party kind of go against that norm. So with such a controversial act that's kind of going possibly against the norms in India, how how has the public been reacting?
2: Most of the backlash amongst the public has been driven by uh, student groups. Also, organizations like the United Nations have raised concerns that uh, uh, the students have also uh, raised that the CAA neglects uh, vulnerable groups like the Rohingya Muslims, who are famously regarded as the most persecuted community in the world uh, in the present day. They are fleeing violent persecution in nearby Myanmar, citing efforts by the army and government to systematically eliminate them. And from Myanmar, many have entered nearby uh, Bangladesh and reside in its two official refugee camps. And Bangladesh houses over a million refugees, which has caused a significant amount of strain on its infrastructure. And on March 1st of 2019, Bangladesh announced that they would stop accepting uh, Rohingya refugees altogether. Uh, So from Bangladesh, the Rohingya have attempted to enter India. And there are about 18,000 Rohingya Muslims who have been registered with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees as seeking asylum in India. And the CEAA specifically excludes them from receiving citizenship. And India has also deported many seeking asylum back to Bangladesh. In December 2019, Home Minister Amit Shah said in parliament that Rohingyas will never be accepted as citizens of India and that undocumented immigrants entering the country are termites and must be thrown into the Bay of Bengal. Residents of the northeastern states of the country that are obviously closest to Bangladesh uh, oppose the bill too. But interestingly, it's because they seemingly want a ban on migrants entirely, regardless of their religion.
0: Now, so uh, there is no future if you, don't, like, if you don't revoke this law. Like, it's not about revoking the law. It's about how you will change the psyche, how you will change the ideology. Of people like who are supporting this. Right. So yeah, I'm basically seeing more about this, uh, you know, there is no moral conscience left in Indian society.
1: Could you explain why specifically the Northeastern states seem very against this bill?
3: So these migrants invariably tend to enter through states like Assam, which are already strapped for resources, They don't share the same level of economic development as other parts of India, especially the more affluent south. So incoming migrants put pressure on the weak economic and political system. And the residents of these regions also fear the loss of their political power as the majority in the region. And these residents don't want that. So there have been multiple protests in these regions of the country, especially, but obviously from, for a very different reason. So it's a problem with multiple layers to it.
1: So you mentioned that students in particular play a large role in the opposition of this act. How have students been uh, speaking out against it?
2: Multiple colleges and universities all over the country have erupted in anger after the bill was passed and they've organized sit-ins, lockouts, um, picketing and even full-scale marches. On December 15th, 2019, in response to anti-CAA protests organized by students, the Delhi police stormed the campus of Jamia Millia Islamia, a public university in Delhi. They entered on the pretext of apprehending the individual's disturbing public peace, uh, but video footage released later in February 2020 shows that the police entered the library and brutally attacked and beat up the students using batons and tear gas. And according to that video, at least 80 students were injured. So, this incident has rippled across the country, and other universities organized marches and protests, many of them also facing clashes with the police, resulting in injuries and even fatalities.
1: Have they made any progress? Has the government had to respond to these demands and protests?
2: So far, there's been no action taken against the Delhi police for infiltrating JMI's campus and a library. And there's been no relief for support for the families of those who have lost their lives in the riots in Northeast Delhi. And obviously, the coronavirus has definitely stalled protests as people... Uh, no longer want to organize in public.
1: Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to follow the news in the coming weeks and months to see how just every movement across the world will have to adapt. and.
3: Yeah, you're right. And uh, I put this to Fatima Zora, who is a law student and an activist, and she's attended many of these protests herself. And she admitted that it has impacted um, protest movements, but she sees protest as a symbolic act. And she doesn't see the movement dying out. She just sees it as a little bit of a detour, a little bit of a change in tactics, but definitely spirits are still high. And as soon as, you know, we can, as soon as people see it as safe to gather once again, we can expect people right back on the streets.
1: Yeah, well, I look forward to that. And in the meantime, I guess everyone will be watching Twitter for news and protests and all of that. Yeah. Moving on from there, could we zoom in a little bit to the Delhi riots? Could you explain what they are and what they're asking for?
3: Right. So on, the, on 24th February 2020, 53 people were killed and over 200 people injured in violent Hindu-Muslim conflict in Delhi. So there was... Railways and homes were set on fire, people were stabbed and shot, and there was widespread looting, general pelvic disorder. The bloodshed lasted seven days, and it was it was horrifying to watch on TV and hear the news. And in all of this, it's important to remember that Delhi is a Union territory, which means that its police force is under the direct control of India's central government, which is of course run by the BJP. So that's another strike against the Delhi police. And they've been accused of a lot of misdemeanor in this whole affair so it's the issue is definitely a paramount, paramount importance because the Delhi riots drew a sharper march in the UN.
0: So we are basically living in fear and after the Delhi riots and the Delhi program people, uh, people actually don't fear much about coronavirus they fear much what will happen to their future basically.
3: So it's fair to say that the issue is of paramount importance. And it really took a turn after the Delhi riots. It drew sharp remarks from the UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez. And on March 3rd, the UNHRC filed an intervention plea with the Indian Supreme Court. So it's definitely becoming a lot larger than an, in, in like an internal affair for India. It's like people outside the country are really waking up to the fact that there are serious human rights abuses going on at the moment.
1: Yeah, that'll be interesting to keep an eye on in the news um, in the coming uh, months, but let's zoom out a little bit to the international response to the Indian Citizenship Act. Do we have any specific examples of how countries have been responding verbally or through policy in response to this?
2: Yeah, there have been a variety of responses from different countries. Prime Minister Modi uh, has continued his predecessor's policy of multi alignment in India's foreign policy, which has been to solidify India's relationships with the United States, the European Union, uh, and China to further the country's economic interests. And so that has challenged and complicated the international responses. Uh, The United States Commission on International Religious Freedom characterized the bill as a dangerous turn in the wrong direction and claimed that the bill's use of religion as a pathway to citizenship went against religious pluralism, a claim that India refuted as neither accurate nor warranted. Organization of Islamic cooperation declared that it was increasingly concerned by the CAA due to its perceived discrimination of India's Muslim population. Interestingly, China issued a joint statement with neighboring Pakistan saying that they opposed any further unilateral sanctions against India that would further complicate the situation. The amendment is uh, certainly, for example, uh, the United States and India, they have been fostering the relationship. President Trump and Prime Minister Modi have uh, taken actions to make the relationship uh, more productive. Uh, The United States can certainly see India as a key ally in balancing against, for example, a rising uh, China. So President Trump was just in India at an event called Namaste Trump, and the Prime Minister was in Texas uh, at the end of 2019 at an event called Howdy Modi. So while the US Commission on International Religious Freedom attacked the bill, uh, we haven't seen a single response from the White House. So the criticism, I think because of India's uh, attempts to broaden its relationship with powers like the US, um, the criticism has certainly been diminished compared to, let's say, if India had a more hostile relationship with the U.S., where you would probably see the U.S. take a more aggressive attack on the bill?
3: The BJP's responses are quite remarkable. Um, as I mentioned before, the V. Surya said that the people for the act are informed and educated, and the people against are poor and illiterate, and they just don't understand, and they've been duped. And uh, he said an interesting line. He said, the Nambi-Pambi secularism you people have built will not work anymore. And then Chakravarti Solabile, who is a member of the, the nationalist group that I mentioned earlier, he said that the Muslim residents of India would never be affected by the act. Only those Muslim immigrants who are snatching away the livelihoods of Indians have to leave the country. So there's like a really there's a really clear emphasis on the... The different strata in society in both of these leaders' speeches, and it really illustrates what protesters against the act have been saying—that the BJP is trying to create a them versus us narrative, and that like dissenters somehow not fully Indian or not—they don't have India's best interests at heart. And this this resonates with the populist, the nationalist, right-wing direction Modi government's the Modi government has been taking since taking office. It also has a striking similarity to the way. President Trump has remarked on immigrants. And as he mentioned before, there's a lot of uh, a really close relations between these two countries and it's only going to grow.
0: Like, uh, see, Tejasi has a very, uh, I don't know, he's making a very stupid comment. The protests, which I've been to, there are women, like Muslim women, like right. there who are doctors. Like they are very learned people, they know about CA and RC and NPR, even if they, they don't know, but we are unhappy with the government. From the last six years, they have there have been constant fascism, there have been constant attacks on the soul of India. So people are angry with the government. So it's not about basically you're educated or not educated, but basically it's about what is morally right and wrong. You, sh- you should be able to differentiate that. That's why people are sitting at the protest.
2: Absolutely.
1: Interesting. And I've also read that, you know, the prime minister himself hasn't necessarily made very staunch on anti-Muslim uh, remarks, but he has, you know, hired and has those close to him who are not afraid to hold back in their remarks against Muslim immigrants.
3: That's correct. And honestly, the people that he surrounds himself with are pretty hard hitters in that Region, um, he appointed Yogi Adityanath, who is a pretty overtly Hindutva individual. Um, and it's a, even though Prime Minister Modi may not have made outright remarks, people definitely see him as empowering and enabling a lot of anti Muslim individuals in the BJP's structure.
0: Even at the protests, like, yeah. People from the people, those who are from other communities are welcome to join us like they do join us and they are at the forefront with us, but they have to understand that minority community, basically Muslims won't leave their identities like the law is itself is like, you know, a war on their identities as an Indian, like people are questioning us. So I think like we need more support from them. Right. Because at the protests, I saw like people who are learned, I know, but to put, like protests are not for the majority, especially even the upper class, even the upper, uh, upper caste Hindus, like everybody should pitch in to save the soul of India.
1: So with the current state of affairs that the world is in, where do we expect the story about India to be going in the next couple of months and so forth? And why is it important for citizens of the United States to pay attention to this evolving story?
2: Yeah, and despite the coronavirus completely taking over the news cycle, it's important for American citizens to look at issues like this when discriminates against uh, an entire religion, especially religion of a refugee group that essentially has nowhere to go.
1: And that's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Enquirer, and thank you to Ria and Garrett for bringing us this week's story. Additionally, a special thank you to Fatima Zora for her insight. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook. And be sure to join us next week when we sit down with John Sun to discuss Eurodollars and foreign banking.